Chapter 2 The Christian Middle Ages 1. The Roman Law, Property Rights, and Laissez-Faire One of the most powerful influences in the legal and political thought and institutions of the Christian West during the Middle Ages was the Roman Law, derived from the Republic and Empire of ancient Rome. Roman law classically developed in the 1st to the 3rd centuries A.D. Private law developed the theory of the absolute right of private property and of freedom of trade and contract. While Roman public law theoretically allowed state interference in the life of the citizen, there was little such interference in the late Republic and early Empire. Private property rights and laissez-faire were therefore the fundamental heritage of the Roman law to later centuries, and much of it was adopted by countries of the Christian West. Though the Roman Empire collapsed in the 4th and 5th centuries, its legal heritage continued as embodied in two great collections of the Roman law. Influential in the West, the Theodosian Code, promulgated by the Emperor Theodosius in 438 A.D., and in the East, the great four-volume Corpus Juris Civilis, promulgated by the Byzantine Christian Emperor Justinian in the 530s. Both collections emphasized strongly that the just price was simply any price arrived at by free and voluntary bargaining between buyer and seller. Each man has the right to do what he wants with his property, and therefore has the right to make contracts to give away, buy, or sell such property. Hence, whatever price is freely arrived at is just. Thus, in the corpus, several leading Roman jurists of the 3rd century quoted the early 2nd century jurist Pomponius in a classic expression of the morality of laissez-faire. In buying and selling, natural law permits the one party to buy for less and the other to sell for more than the thing is worth. Thus, each party is allowed to outwit the other. And it is naturally permitted to parties to circumvent each other in the price of buying and selling. The only problem here is the odd phrase, the thing is worth, which assumes that there is some value other than free bargaining that expresses some true worth, a phrase that would prove to be an unfortunate harbinger of the future. More specifically, the Theodosian Code was crystal clear. Any price set by free and voluntary bargaining is just and legitimate, the only exception being a contract made by children. Force or fraud, as infringements on property rights, were, of course, considered illegal. The Code held explicitly that ignorance of the value of a good by either buyer or seller was insufficient ground for authorities to step in and rescind the voluntarily agreed contract. The Theodosian Code was carried forward in Western Europe, for example, the Visigothic law set forth in the 6th and 7th centuries, and the Bavarian law of the early 8th century. 
Bavarian law added the explicit provision that a buyer may not rescind a sale because he later decides that the agreed price was too high. This laissez-faire aspect of the Theodosian Code later became incorporated into Christian canon law by being included in the collection of capitularies, decrees, by St. Benedictus Diaconus in the 9th century A.D. While the Justinian corpus promulgated in the East was equally devoted to laissez-faire, it included a minor element that was later to grow and justify attacks upon free bargaining. As part of the Justinian discussion of how courts can appraise property for payment of damages, the Code mentioned that if a seller has sold his property for less than half the just price, then he suffers great loss, laesio enormous, and the seller is then entitled either to get back the difference between the original price and the just price from the buyer, or else get his property back at that original price. This clause was apparently meant only to apply to real estate and to compensations for damages, where authorities must somehow assess the true price, and it had no influence on the laws of the next centuries, but it was to yield unfortunate effects in the future. 2. Early Christian Attitudes Toward Merchants Roman law was not the only influence on economic ideas in the Middle Ages. Ambivalent attitudes in the early Christian tradition also proved highly important. Economic matters were, of course, scarcely central to either the Old or New Testament, and scattered economic pronouncements are contradictory or subject to ambivalent interpretation. Fulminations against excessive love of money do not necessarily imply hostility to commerce or wealth. One remarkable aspect of the Old Testament, however, is its repeated, almost pre-Calvinist extolling of work for its own sake. In contrast to the contemptuous attitude toward labor of the Greek philosophers, the Old Testament is filled with exhortations in favor of work from the Be Fruitful and Multiply of Genesis, to Enjoy Life in Your Toil at Which You Toil Under the Sun of Ecclesiastes. Oddly, these calls to labor are often accompanied by admonitions against the accumulation of wealth. Later, in the second century B.C., the Hebrew scribe who wrote the apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus goes so far as to extol labor as a sacred calling. Manual workers, he writes, keep stable the fabric of the world, and their prayer is in the practice of their trade. Yet the pursuit of money is condemned, and merchants are habitually treated with deep suspicion. A merchant can hardly keep from wrongdoing, and a tradesman will not be declared innocent of sin. And yet, in the same book of Ecclesiasticus, the reader is instructed not to be ashamed of profit or success in business. The attitude of the early Christians, including Jesus and the apostles, toward work and trade was colored by their intense expectation of the imminent end of the world and of the coming of the kingdom of God. 
Obviously, if one expects the impending end of the world, one is inclined to have little patience for such activities as investing or accumulating wealth. Rather, the tendency is to act as the lilies of the field, to follow Jesus and forget about mundane matters. It was in this context that we must understand St. Paul's famous, The love of money is the root of all evil. By approximately 100 A.D., however, the books of the New Testament written by St. John make it clear that the Christian church had abandoned the idea of the imminent end of the world. But the Hellenistic and the Gospel heritage fused to lead the early church fathers into a retreatist view of the world and its economic activities, combined with fulminations against wealth and merchants who tend to amass such wealth. The church fathers railed against mercantile activities as necessarily stamped with the sin of greed, and as almost always accompanied by deceit and fraud. Leading the parade was the mystical and apocalyptic Tertullian, 160-240, a prominent Carthaginian lawyer who converted late in life to Christianity and eventually formed his own heretical sect. To Tertullian, attack on merchants and money-making was part and parcel of a general philippic against the secular world, which he expected at any moment to founder on the shoals of excess population, so that the earth would soon suffer from epidemics, famines, wars, and the earth's opening to swallow whole cities as a grisly solution to the overpopulation problem. Two centuries later, the fiery St. Jerome, circa 340 to 420, educated in Rome but also influenced by the Eastern Fathers, took up the theme, proclaiming the fallacy that in trade, one man's gain must be achieved by means of the other man's loss. All riches come from iniquity, and unless one has lost, another cannot gain. Hence that common opinion seems to me to be very true. The rich man is unjust, or the heir of an unjust one. And yet there was another contradictory strain even in Jerome, who also declared that a wise man with riches has greater glory than one who is wise only, for he can accomplish more good things. Wealth is not an obstacle to the rich man who uses it well. Probably the most intelligent attitude toward wealth and money-making among the early church fathers was that of the Athenian-born Eastern father Clement of Alexandria, circa 150 to 215. While Clement counseled that property be used for the good of the community, he endorsed private property and the accumulation of wealth. He attacked as foolish the ascetic ideal of divesting oneself of one's possessions. As Clement wisely put it, employing a natural law theme, we must not cast away riches which can benefit our neighbor. Possessions were made to be possessed. Goods are called goods because they do good, and they have been provided by God for the good of men. They are at hand and serve as the material, the instruments for a good use in the hand of him who knows how to use them. 
Clement also took a hard-nosed attitude toward the rootless poor. If living without possessions was so desirable, he pointed out, then that whole swarm of proletarians, derelicts, and beggars who live from hand to mouth, all those wretched cast out upon the streets, though they live in ignorance of God and of His justice, would be the most blessed and the most religious, and the only candidates for eternal life, simply because they are penniless. The early church fathers culminated in the great St. Augustine, 354-430, who, living at the time of the sack of Rome in 410 and of the collapse of the Roman Empire, had to look ahead to a post-ancient world, which he was greatly to influence. Born in Numidia in Africa, Aurelius Augustinus was educated in Carthage and became a professor of rhetoric in Milan. Baptized a Christian at the age of 32, St. Augustine became Bishop of Hippo in his native North Africa. The Roman Empire under Constantine had embraced Christianity a century earlier, and Augustine wrote his great work, The City of God, as a rebuttal to the charge that the embrace of Christianity had resulted in the fall of Rome. Augustine's economic views were scattered throughout the City of God and his other highly influential writings, but he definitely and presumably independently of Aristotle arrived at the view that people's payments for goods, the valuation they placed on them, was determined by their own needs rather than by any more objective criterion, or by their rank in the order of nature. This was at least the basis of the later Austrian theory of subjective value. He also pointed out that it was the common desire of all men to buy cheap and to sell dear. Furthermore, Augustine was the first church father to have a positive attitude towards the role of the merchant. Rebutting the common patristic charges against the merchants, Augustine pointed out that they perform a beneficial service by transporting goods over great distances and selling them to the consumer. Since, according to Christian principle, the laborer is worthy of his hire, then the merchant too deserved compensation for his activities and labor. To the common charge of endemic deceit and fraud in the mercantile trades, Augustine cogently replied that any such lies and perjuries were the fault not of the trade, but of the trader himself. Such sins originated in the iniquity of the person, not in his occupation. After all, Augustine pointed out, shoemakers and farmers are also capable of lies and perjuries and yet the church fathers had not condemned their occupations as being per se evil. Clearing the merchants of the stain of inherent evil proved enormously influential in the following centuries, and was quoted time and again in the flowering of Christian thought in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. A less tangible but still important contribution to social thought was St. Augustine's recasting of the ancient world's view of the human personality. To the Greek philosophers, the individual personality was to be molded to conform to the needs and desires of the polis. 
Dictation by the polis necessarily meant a static society, with discouragement directed towards any innovating entrepreneurs trying to break out of the contemporary mold. But St. Augustine's stress was on the individual's personality unfolding itself, and therefore progressing over time. Hence Augustine's profound emphasis on the individual at least set the stage indirectly for an attitude favorable to innovation, economic growth, and development. That aspect of Augustine's thought, however, was not really stressed by the 13th century Christian theologians and philosophers who built on Augustine's thought. It is ironic that the man who set the stage for optimism and a theory of human progress should, on his deathbed, find the barbarian hordes besieging his beloved city of Hippo. If St. Augustine looked benignly on the role of the merchant, he was also favorable, though not as warmly, toward the social role of rulers of state. On the one hand, Augustine took up and expanded Cicero's parable, demonstrating that Alexander the Great was simply a pirate writ large, and that the state is nothing but a large-scale and settled robber band. In his famous City of God, Augustine asks, And so, if justice is left out, what are kingdoms except great robber bands? For what are robber bands except little kingdoms? The band also is a group of men governed by the orders of a leader, bound by a social compact, and its booty is divided according to a law agreed upon. If, by repeatedly adding desperate men, this plague grows to the point where it holds territory and establishes a fixed seat, seizes cities and subdues people, then it more conspicuously assumes the name of kingdom, and this name is now openly granted to it, not for any subtraction of cupidity, but by addition of impunity. For it was an elegant and true reply that was made to Alexander the Great by a certain pirate whom he had captured. When the king asked him what he was thinking of, that he should molest the sea, he said with defiant independence, the same as you when you molest the world. Since I do this with a little ship, I am called a pirate. You do it with a great fleet, and are called emperor." Yet Augustine ends by approving the role of the state, even though it is a robber band on a large scale. For while he stressed the individual rather than the polis, in pre-Calvinist fashion, Augustine emphasized the wickedness and depravity of man. In this fallen, wicked, and sinful world, state rule, though unpleasant and coercive, becomes necessary. Hence, Augustine supported the forcible crushing by the Christian church in North Africa of the Donatist heresy, which indeed believed, in contrast to Augustine, that all kings were necessarily evil. The likening of the head of state to a large-scale brigand, however, was resurrected in its original anti-state context by the great pope, Gregory VII, in the course of his struggle with the kings of Europe over his Gregorian reforms in the late 11th century. 
This strain of bitter anti-statism, then, emerges from time to time in the early Christian era and in the Middle Ages. 3. The Carolingians and Canon Law Canon law was the law governing the church, and during the early Christian era and the Middle Ages, the intertwining of church and state often meant that canon law and state law were one and the same. Early canon law consisted of papal decretals, decrees of church councils, and the writings of the church fathers. We have seen that later canon law also incorporated much of the Roman law, but canon law also included something else basically pernicious, the decrees and regulations, capitularies, of the Carolingian Empire in the latter 8th and 9th centuries. From the 5th to the 10th centuries, the economic and political chaos of the Dark Ages prevailed throughout Europe, and there was, consequently, little or no room for the development of political, legal, or economic thought. The only exception was the activities of the Carolingian Empire, which burgeoned in Western Europe. The most important Carolingian emperor was Charlemagne, 742-814, and his rule developed onto his successors during the remainder of the ninth century. In capitulary after capitulary, Charlemagne and his successors laid down detailed regulations for every aspect of economic, political, and religious life throughout the empire. Many of these regulations became incorporated into the canon law of later centuries, thereby remaining influential well after the crumbling of the Carolingian Empire itself. Charlemagne built his despotic network of regulations on a shaky foundation. Thus, the important Church Council of Nicaea, 325, had forbidden any clergyman from engaging in any economic activities leading to shameful gain, turpe lucrum. In his council at Nijmegen, 806, Charlemagne revived, greatly broadened, and imposed the old doctrine of turpe lucrum. But now the prohibition was extended from the clergy to everyone, and the definition broadened from fraud to all greed and avarice, and included any disobedience of Charlemagne's extensive price regulations. Any market deviations from these fixed prices were accused of being profiteering by either buyers or sellers, and hence turpe lucrum. As a corollary, all speculative buying and selling in foodstuffs was prohibited. Moreover, in foreshadowing the English common law prohibition of forestalling, any sale of goods outside and at higher prices than the regular markets was prohibited. Since the English common law was motivated not by a misguided attempt to aid the poor, but in order to confer monopoly privileges on local owners of market sites, it is highly probable that Charlemagne, too, was trying to cartelize markets and confer privileges on market owners. Every arbitrary price decree of the Carolingian officialdom was, of course, revered by the Carolingians as the just price. 
Probably this coerced price was often near what had been a customary or current price in the neighborhood. Otherwise, it would be difficult to conceive how the Carolingian officials would discover what price was supposed to be just. But this meant a futile and uneconomic attempt to freeze all prices on the basis of some past market status quo. The problem, then, is that later canon law incorporated the idea of the just price as being the state-decreed price. The banning of any price higher than the current market price was reimposed by the late Carolingian emperor Carloman in 1884 and incorporated into the canon law collection of Regino of Prum in 900 and over a century later into that of Bertrand of Worms. Remarkably, the two contradictory legal strains, the laissez-faire theme of the Theodosian Code and the statist Carolingian motif, both found their way into the great collection at the basis of the medieval discipline of the canon law, that of Bishop Evo of Chartres at the turn of the 12th century. There, in the same collection, we find the view that the just price is any price voluntarily arrived at by buyer and seller, and also the contradictory view that the just price is one decreed by the state, especially if it be the common price in general markets. 4. Canonists and Romanists at the University of Bologna the High Middle Ages were established by the commercial revolution of the 11th to 13th centuries, in which trade, production, and finance flourished, living standards rose markedly, and the institutions of commercial capitalism developed in Western Europe. With the advent of economic growth and prosperity, canon and Roman law, learning and social thought, also began to flourish once again. The fountainhead and great center of both canon and Roman law studies during the High Middle Ages was the University of Bologna in Italy, flourishing from the early 12th century to the latter part of the 13th. During those two centuries, both canon and Roman law, including the Justinian Code, were revived at Bologna, influenced each other, and penetrated to the rest of Western Europe. The great and definitive collection of canon law, the Decretum, was published around the year 1140 by the Italian monk Johannes Gratian, who founded canon law studies at the University of Bologna. The Decretum was the definitive canon law work from that point on, and for the remainder of the 12th century, Bolognese scholars, known as the Decretists, elaborated, discussed, and wrote glosses on Gratian's work. Gratian himself and his early glossators took a traditional zealous anti-merchant position. Speculation, buying cheap to sell dear, purely mercantile activities, were turpe lucrum, and inevitably involved fraud. The first decretus to begin to take an intelligent position on the activities of the merchant was Rufinus, a professor at Bologna who later became Bishop of Assisi and then Archbishop of Sorrento. 
In his Summa, 1157-1159, to the Decretum, Rufinus pointed out that artisans and craftsmen could buy materials cheaply, work on them and transform them, and then sell the product at a higher price. This form of buying cheap and selling dear was justified by the craftsman's expenses and labor, and is permissible even to the clergy as well as to the laity. However, another activity, practiced by the pure merchant or speculator who buys cheap and sells dear without transforming the product, is, according to Rufinus, absolutely forbidden to the clergy. The lay merchant, however, could honorably engage in these transactions, provided that he had either made heavy expenditures or was fatigued by hard labor, but a pure entrepreneurial cheap purchase to be followed by a sale when market prices were higher was condemned unconditionally by Rufinus. This partial rehabilitation of the merchant by the Decretists was included in the important Summa of 1188 of Huguccio, professor at Polonia, later chosen bishop of Ferrara, Huguccio repeated the views of Rufinus, but shifted the justification of the merchant from labor or expenses to actions that provide for the needs of the merchant's family. Huguccio's stress, then, was not on objective costs, but on the subjective intentions of the merchant, supposing that they could be discovered. Was it mere greed, or was it a desire to fulfill his family's needs? Clearly, Huguccio allowed considerable room for mercantile activities. Moreover, Huguccio began a radical reconstruction of patristic teachings about private property. From the time of Huguccio, private property was to be considered a sacrosanct right derived from the natural law. The property of individuals and communities was, at least in principle, supposed to be free from arbitrary invasion on the part of the state. As moderator and arbiter of his own goods, an individual owner could use and dispose of them as he saw fit, provided that he did not violate general legal rules. A ruler could only expropriate the property of an innocent subject if public necessity required it. This, of course, was a hole in the system of rights, since public necessity could be and was an elastic concept. But this concept of private property was an enormous advance over patristic teachings. After the late 12th century, the decretist movement in canon law gave way to the decretalists, who based themselves on a stream of papal edicts, or decretals, from the late 12th to the 13th century. Since the Pope is supreme in the Catholic Church, the decretals pronounced by him and his Vatican Curia automatically became incorporated into the body of canon law. In this way, canon law came to differ from that of Gratian and the Decretists, who built the law chiefly on ancient sources. But the new Decretals were scarcely arbitrary. They built on and elaborated previous canon law. The continuity of the building process was greatly aided by the fact that several of these popes were former Bolognese. Thus, Pope Alexander III, 
Roland Bandinelli, who initiated the new decretal process and who enjoyed a long papal reign from 1159 to 1181, had studied both law and theology at Bologna, was probably a professor there, and had direct contact with the great Gratian. A distinguished legal scholar who himself had written an early summa to Gratian's decretum, Alexander became cardinal and chancellor before being elected to the papacy. Another significant papal decretalist, Pope Innocent II, Lothair de Seigny, who reigned from 1198 to 1216, had studied canon law under Huguccio at Bologna. Finally, Pope Gregory IX, Ugolino de Seigny, a pontiff from 1227 to 1241, commissioned and published the momentous Decretals in 1234, incorporating Gratian's Decretum of a century before, in addition to the various papal decretals. Gregory IX's Decretals became the standard work of canon law from that point on. The Decretalists had a far more favorable attitude toward merchants and the free market than had the early Decretists. In the first place, instead of the negative patristic attitude toward merchants and trade, the Decretalists, beginning with Pope Alexander III and continuing through Gregory IX, incorporated the free market attitude of the Roman law. Unfortunately, it was not the pure laissez-faire attitude of the Theodosian or even Justinian law. For when the Justinian Code came to Bologna and Western Europe at the beginning of the 12th century, the French author of the Bracologus took up the laesio enormous principle of the Justinian Code and greatly changed its meaning. Instead of applying the concept of just price differing from the actual price to the assessment of damages, as in the Justinian Code, the Brachylogus expanded the concept from real estate to all goods, and from assessing damages to actual sales. In the hands of the Brachylogus, if any sale, even a voluntary one, had been made at less than half the just price, the seller could present the buyer with the choice, either pay me the difference between the sale price and the just price, or else rescind the contract, with the buyer returning the goods and the seller returning the payment. It has been pointed out that this was not a cartelizing device, since neither third parties nor the state could step in to enforce laesio enormis. The enforcement had to be done on a charge made by the seller himself. The Roman law developing during the 12th and 13th centuries was largely the product of the University of Bologna, where Roman law studies had been founded by Irnerius in the late 11th century. In the mid-12th century, the Bolognese Roman jurists began to incorporate the broader concept of laesio enormis of the Brachologus. About 1150, the Provençal Locodi, a popular adaptation of a recent Bolognese summa, added another fateful expansion of laesio enormis. 
For the first time, this Provencal work included buyers as well as sellers as suffering from Laesio Enormis, when the sale price was significantly higher than the just price. In the low Cody, if a buyer had paid more than twice the true value or just price of a product, then the seller had the option either to pay the buyer the difference between the just and the sale price, or else rescind the contract. Remarkably, when the low Cody was translated back into Latin, this new extended restriction on laissez-faire was added to the Roman law, particularly by Albericus, professor of Roman law at Bologna, in his canon law collection at the end of the 12th century. The burgeoning principle of Laesio Enormis reached its final extension in the late 12th century work of the Bolognese-trained Petrus Placentinus. Placentinus lowered the maximum permissible price to 1.5 times the just price, beyond which the principle of Laesio Enormis went into effect. This final expansion was incorporated into the works of the three great Bolognese Roman law professors of the 13th century, Azzo, circa 1210, Azzo's highly influential student and follower, Acrisius, circa 1228 to 1260, a native of Florence, and the culmination of the Bolognese school in Odofredus in the mid-13th century. While it is true that the 12th and 13th century Romanists took the trivial concept of Laesio Enormis and made it a significant restriction on freedom of bargaining and laissez-faire, at least by the late 12th century they also made clear that there was to be full freedom of bargaining and freedom to outwit the other within the matrix of Laesio Enormis. The Decretalists, beginning with Pope Alexander III, incorporated much of this developing Roman law. This meant that church law now included not only the patristic fulminations against merchants per se, but also the contrasting Romanist tradition of full freedom of bargaining within the Laesio Enormis matrix. The Decretalists reached their culmination, after building on and glossing the Decretals of Gregory IX, in the works of Cardinal Henricus Hostiensis de Segusio, first in the late 1250s and finally in 1271, the year of his death. Hostiensis had studied canon and Roman law at Bologna, had taught in England and France, and was Cardinal Archbishop of Ostia. The Decretalists justified speculative buying and selling, freeing it from the sin of turpe lucrum by adopting and expanding the Huguccian line that speculation was permissible if the speculator was acting to fulfill the needs of his family. In the gloss of the French-Dominican canonist William of Wren, circa 1250, this area of freedom was broadened still further. A merchant's or speculator's actions were not considered sinful unless he was driven by a wanton desire for having temporal riches, not for necessary use or utility, but for curiosity, so that the fancy is charmed by such 
just as a magpie or a crow is enticed by coins, which they discover and hide away. Surely this kind of stricture, which can only apply to a few persons in the real world, had come very far from the patristic denunciations of merchants and traders per se. Another loosening of restrictions came with Alanus Anglicus, an English-born professor of canon law at Bologna, writing in the first two decades of the 13th century. Alanus declared that no turpe lucrum, or usury for that matter, could exist if the future price of a good was uncertain in the mind of the merchant. Not only is uncertainty always present in the market, but also it is impossible for outside courts or authorities to prove that a merchant did not feel uncertain when he bought or sold. In effect, all turpe lucrum restrictions on trade or speculation had now been removed. In analyzing business profits, the later 13th century canonists added to the older justification of profit as covering labor plus expenses. This was the element of risk, present in every business situation. Increase of price as a consequence of risk was first justified in the prominent canon law commentaries of Pope Innocent IV, Sinibaldo Fieschi, published between 1246 and 1253. Before becoming Pope, Innocent had been a native of Genoa and a student of Roman and canon law at Bologna, a professor of Roman law at that university, and finally a cardinal and a famous statesman. If transactions were to be sinful and illegal beyond a certain zone above or below the just price, then the church and the authorities had to find some way of figuring out what the just price was supposed to be. This had not been a problem before the 12th and 13th centuries, since the doctrine of Laesio Enormus had not really been applied before. The Romanist and Canonist solution, reminiscent of Carolingian doctrine, was that the just price was the going, current, common market price, the communis estimatio. This meant either the competitive general market price as contrasted to single isolated transactions, or it could refer to prices fixed by governments or government-privileged guilds, since such controls, by strict legality, would be the going de jure price. Perhaps it would have been beneath the dignity of these jurists to sanction or even recognize any black market prices that violated such regulations. Placentinus used this criterion in late 12th century Roman jurisprudence, as did in particular Azo in the early 13th. Azo was liberal enough to refer to the price of a sale equaling that of any other comparable sale as being a just price. But Accursius, and after him Odofredus, explicitly referred to the general or common market price as being the standard of justice. As Accursius put it, a thing was valued at that for which it could be commonly sold. The canon lawyers adopted the same criterion for the just price. 
influenced by Carolingian practice and by hints from the 6th century rule of St. Benedict, the late 12th century canonist and student of Gratian, Simon of Bosignano, first described the true value of goods as the price for which they commonly sold. The same position was then taken by the Decretalists in the 13th century. Canonists and Romanists alike were now agreed on the common price of a good as the just one. But still, the developed canonists of the 13th century had a problem. On the one hand, they had adopted the Roman law view that all free bargaining was legitimate except for a zone more than a certain degree above or beyond the just price, which they held to be the going common market price. But, on the other hand, they had inherited from the church fathers and the early decretists a hostility toward mercantile, especially speculative, transactions. How could they square this contradiction? Partly, as we have seen, they were able to weaken the extent of shameful speculation. Also, from the 13th century on, the church and its canon lawyers largely solved the problem through the highly sensible doctrine of the two forums over which the church exercised jurisdiction. The external forum, the Jus Fori, judged the social activities of Christians in public ecclesiastical courts. There, the courts judged offenses against the church and her common law in much the same procedures as the secular courts. On the other hand, the internal forum, the Jus Poli, was the confessional, in which the priest judged individual Christians on the basis of their personal relation to God. The two forums were separate and distinct, the respective judgments on two different levels. While the church presumed to rule over both, the one was external and social, the other private and personal. The doctrine of the two forums enabled the canonists to resolve the seeming contradiction in canon law. The free bargaining, laesio enormis, common market principle, was the realm of external law and the open court, where, in other words, a roughly free market could prevail. On the other hand, the strictures against mercantile profits going beyond labor, costs, and risk were a matter not for the state and external law, but for conscience in the confessional. Even more obviously for the confessional alone were the injunctions against trade or speculation based on avarice as going beyond honorable need to support one's family. Clearly, only the man himself, internally in his conscience, could know his intentions. They were scarcely observable by external law. 5. The Canonist Prohibition of Usury The great relaxation of moral and legal restrictions and prohibitions against trade that permeated the canonists and Romanists in the Middle Ages unfortunately did not apply to the stern prohibitions leveled against usury. Modern people think of usury as very high interest rates charged on a loan, but this was by no means the meaning until recent times. 
Classically, usury means any rate whatsoever charged on a loan, no matter how low. The prohibition of usury was a prohibition against any interest charge on a loan. With one exception, no one in the ancient world, whether in Greece, China, India, or Mesopotamia, prohibited interest. That exception was the Hebrews, who, in an expression of narrow tribal morality, permitted charging interest to non-Jews, but prohibited it among Jews. The fierce medieval Christian assault on usury is decidedly odd. For one thing, there is nothing in the Gospels or the early fathers, despite their hostility to trade, that can be construed as urging the prohibition of usury. In fact, the parable of the talents in Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, can easily be taken as approval for earning interest on commercial loans. The campaign against usury begins with the first church council in Nicaea in 325, which itself prohibited only the clergy from charging interest on a loan. But the Nicene council grabbed on to one phrase of Psalm 14 in the Old Testament, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? He that hath not put out his money to usury and this was to become the favorite and virtually the only biblical text against usury during the Middle Ages. The Nicene injunctions were repeated in later 4th century councils at Elvira in Spain and at Carthage, and then in the 5th century Pope Leo I extended the prohibition to the laity as well, condemning lay usurers as indulging in turpe lucrum. Several local councils in Gaul in the 7th century repeated Leo's denunciation, as did Pope Adrian and several English church synods in the 8th century. But the prohibition of all usury enters secular legislation for the first time in the all-embracing totalitarian regime of the Emperor Charlemagne. At the fateful Imperial Synod of Aachen in 789, Charlemagne prohibited usury to everyone in his realm, lay and cleric alike. The prohibition was renewed and elaborated in the later council at Nijmegen in 806, where usury is defined for the first time as an exchange where more is demanded back than what is given so that from the time of Charlemagne, usury was intensely held to be a special and particularly malevolent form of turpe lucrum, and attempts to relax this ban were fiercely resisted. The sweeping definition, more demanded than what is given, was repeated intact by canonists from the 10th century Regino of Prum through Evo of Chartres to Gratian. But oddly, though the hostility toward usury continued, and was indeed greatly strengthened among the canonists, the explicit basis for the antagonism changed considerably. During the first centuries of the Christian era, usury was shameful as a form of avarice, or lack of charity. It was not yet considered a vicious sin against justice. 
As commerce began to revive and flourish in 11th century Europe, indeed, denouncing interest-taking as a form of lack of charity began to be considered wide of the mark, since charity had little to do with commercial loans. It was the Italian monk St. Anselm of Canterbury, 1033-1109, who first shifted the ground of attack to rail against usury as theft. This new doctrine was developed by St. Anselm's disciple, Anselm of Lucca, a fellow Italian and native of a city with a burgeoning textile industry. In his collection of canons, made about 1066, Anselm of Lucca explicitly condemned usury as theft and a sin against the seventh commandment, and demanded restitution of usuries to the borrower as stolen goods. This expansion of theft to a voluntary contract where no coercion was used was surely bizarre. And yet this outrageous new concept caught hold and was repeated by Hugh of St. Victor, 1096-1141, and by the collections of Evo of Chartres. In 1139, the Second Lateran Council of the Church explicitly prohibited usury to all men, laity as well as clergy, and held all usurers to be infamous, the council vaguely declared that the Old and New Testaments mandated such a prohibition, but gave no explicit reference. Nine years later, Pope Eugene III moved against the common practice of monasteries charging interest on mortgages. Finally, the canon law reached mature form with the Decretum of Gratian, Gratian hammers away against usury with whatever weapons he can find, from Psalm 14 to the new view that usury is theft and therefore requires restitution. Expounding on the strict prohibition of usury, Gratian extended it to the loan of goods as well as money, so long as anything is demanded beyond the principal and he expressly declared that in such a case the just price was not the common market price, but zero, that is, the exact equivalent of the goods or money lent. The great decretalist Pope Alexander III might have been inclined towards a free market in other areas, but on the usury question he merely deepened and extended the ban, applying the condemnation to charging higher prices for credit than for cash sales. This practice was denounced as implicit usury, even though it was not explicitly interest on a loan. The Third Lateran Council, presided over by Pope Alexander III in 1179, condemned usury and excommunicated and denied Christian burial to all manifest usurers. The next pope, Urban III, 1185-1187, in his decretal Consoluit, dredged up a previously unused citation from Jesus, Lend freely, hoping nothing thereby. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, which from then on became the centerpiece of the theological condemnation of usury as a mortal sin 
And not only that, even the very hope of obtaining usury was supposed to be a virtually equivalent sin. So pervasive was the canonist obsession with usury that Gratian, his predecessors, and his successors largely worked out their theories of sale, profit, or just price in terms of whether or not any particular transaction fell under the dread rubric of usury. Thus, late 12th century decretists like Simon of Bosignano in 1179 and the great Hugucio in 1188 maintained the strict prohibition of any interest charged on a loan as usury, while allowing the renting of a good or buying cheap in order to sell dear as not being cases of usury. Huguccio's tortured moral distinction maintained that a comodatum, a rental contract that transferred only the use of a good, was somehow morally very different from a mutuum, a pure loan where ownership was transferred for a time. Charging for a lease, a comodatum was all right because the owner retains ownership and charges for the use of his own good. But somehow it becomes sinful when a lender charges for the use of a good which he no longer temporarily owns. Profits on trade, too, could be legitimate and lawful as a reward for risk, but interest on a loan, where the risk is borne by the borrower and not the lender, was always usury. The later decretalists attempting to combat practices of merchants in disguising usury in various contracts pressed on to condemn such contracts as implicit usury, provided, as we have seen in treatment of sales contracts, that there is no uncertainty on the future price in the minds of buyer and seller. The early 13th century canonist Alanus Anglicus declared that if there was uncertainty in such a contract, and buyer and seller stood equal chance to gain or lose, usury did not exist. Providing the first real, if small, loophole in the sweeping prohibition against usury, Anglicus explained that this form of implicit usury could exist only in the mind and could not be subject to legal enforcement. This uncertainty loophole was widened slightly in the decretals of Gregory IX. On the other hand, the canonists persisted in cracking down on evasions of the usury ban, which the market kept creatively inventing. Contracts providing for deferred payment on a sale were treated with suspicion, and very high prices in such a contract were taken by the canonists to prove intent to commit usury beyond a reasonable doubt. The decretals also went so far as to condemn creditors charging interest for loans to traveling merchants, even though the canonists realized that the interest was a direct compensation for risks. Although canonists after Innocent IV began to talk of risks justifying profits, so that a profit on risky investments was considered perfectly justified, 
Any interest on a pure loan, or mutuum, was condemned as usury despite reasonably mitigating circumstances. The usury prohibition was the tragic flaw in the economic views of medieval jurists and theologians. The prohibition was economically irrational, depriving marginal borrowers and high credit risks of any borrowed capital whatever. It had no groundwork in natural law, and virtually none in Old or New Testament teachings. And yet, it was clung to fiercely throughout the Middle Ages, so that jurists and theologians had to engage in ingenious and artful twists in reasoning in order to make exceptions from the prohibition, and to accommodate the growing practice of lending money and charging interest on a loan. And yet, the medievalists, especially the later philosophers and theologians, had a fascinating and important point. For what was the moral or economic justification for interest on a pure loan? As we will see, medieval scholastics came to understand full well the economic and moral justifications for almost every aspect of interest charges, as an implicit profit on risk, as an opportunity foregone for making profits on investments, and many others. But why is there still interest charged on a simple, riskless, non-opportunity foregone loan? That answer was not to come fully until the Austrian school of the late 19th century. Where the scholastics were gravely lacking was in not realizing that if interest was paid as well as charged voluntarily, that in itself is sufficient moral justification and further, that there must have been an economic explanation, even though economic science had not yet discovered it. The first systematic breach in the usury prohibition came with the last of the 13th century canonists, Cardinal Hostiensis. In addition to having been a distinguished law professor, Hostiensis was a worldly cosmopolite, having been the ambassador of Henry III to his friend Pope Innocent IV. First, Hostiensis reverted to the old, milder tradition that usury is uncharitable, but not a sin against justice. Then he listed no less than thirteen instances in which the usury prohibition could be broken and interest charged on a loan. One is as surety required by the guarantor of a loan. Another, that a seller may charge a higher price for a good sold on credit than for cash, provided that there is uncertainty as indeed there always is, about the future price of the commodity. Another important exception allowed a creditor to write a penalty clause into a loan, so that the debtor would have to pay a penalty above the principal if he did not repay on the date due. This, of course, paved the way for covert agreement on both sides to delay payment so as to allow the penalty. Another exception was that the creditor might charge for labor which he undertook in making the particular loan. These were all some form of penalty or special payment, 
But, in addition, Hostiensis provided the first path-breaking argument for charging a rate of interest on a loan from the very beginning, a charge that does not involve delay or guarantees. This is lucrum cessans, profit-ceasing, a legitimate interest charge by the creditor to compensate him for profit foregone in investing the money himself. In short, lucrum cessans anticipated the Austrian concept of opportunity cost, of income foregone, and applied it to the charging of interest. Unfortunately, however, Cardinal Hostiensis' use of lucrum cessans was limited to non-habitual lenders who lend money out of charity to a debtor. Thus, lenders could not be in the business of charging money on a loan, even on the ground of lucrum cessans. Another exception made by Hostiensis also provided an open channel for the charging of interest on loans. He allowed the debtor to give a free gift to the creditor, so long as the gift was not required by the creditor. But in that case, debtors, in particular Florentine bankers who received deposits, felt obliged to make gifts to their depositors, else the depositors would shift their funds to competitors who habitually made such gifts. The making of a fake gift became an important mechanism in allowing the de facto charging of interest.